Coming up on Civil War Talk Radio, more on Navy strategies and technology with Jim Jenke and John Willis when we return. How much time each day do you spend managing your personal or business calendar? 15 minutes, a half an hour, maybe more. Is the conference room available for next week's meeting? And how many people do you have to ask to find out? Have you ever misplaced or, worse yet, lost your day planner or handheld device? And what do you do about that missing information? Do you own or operate a salon or carpet cleaning business? How about a realty office or any one of a thousand other service-based organizations? Can your customers make their appointments even when your office is closed? If any of this sounds familiar, then Schedule Online is the solution for you. For more information, call toll-free 888-668-3355. That's 888-668-3355. Or visit us online at www.scheduleonline.com. Do you dream of owning your own business? Franchising may hold the key. Invest in a proven business with proven results. Not sure where to start? Franchise Solutions can help. Franchise Solutions has helped thousands of entrepreneurs find a business to fit their goals and dreams. Find information on hundreds of franchise and business opportunities, as well as tips, advice, and tons of franchise-related resources. Franchise Solutions. Find the business that's right for you. Visit us online today at www.FranchiseSolutions.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Civil War Talk Radio, and I'm John Willis. With me today is Dr. Jim Jackie. Thank you again for joining us, Jim. Sure glad to be here. We've been talking about some of the Union strategy, how to use their Navy at the beginning of the war, the idea they had of blockading the southern ports and dividing the Confederacy along the rivers. You were just talking about the Confederate commerce raiders that the Union was trying to do away with. How did that fit into the Confederate strategy? What was the Confederate plan? You talked about the commerce raiders that were going to prey upon Union shipping. What else were the Confederates trying to do? Okay, well, the, the uh, Confederates had the the goal of just simply uh, not making the blockade stick. It had also goals in terms of um, making the pain in the North so great that the, the Union would simply give up on their efforts <clears throat> to keep the Confederacy in the Union. The, the commerce raiders were, oh, again, a, kind of a fascinating stories in themselves. There were very few of them. Where did the Confederacy find them? Well, originally, uh, they start out with privateers because, again, as I mentioned, they had no ships of their own. So these are quasi-pirates then? Well, at, at the beginning, yes, that was always one of the, the uh, interesting aspects about that, how would they be treated. But as the, uh, the blockade grew, <clears throat> uh, that became a little too dangerous for the privateers, and they gave that up. So the... The Confederacy then went uh, on their own to come up with these raiders rather than privateers. And the, the raiders, they could be, say, like a blockade runner that they convert into a warship, essentially, put a few cannon on it. Uh, the blockade runners, as a commerce raider, had the advantage in that they would be probably fast. 
and one of the aspects about being a commerce reader is you generally wanted to outrun any union ship trying to catch you. You wanted to catch commerce, but you wanted to not fight battles. That was usually something you wanted to avoid. And the um, oh, there were some very uh, famous ones, but some of the best known ones were actually either purchased abroad or actually uh, constructed abroad, like in Britain. Now this would be tricky, uh, given the issues of diplomacy. Trying to buy a warship very much, British very much, would be a very new, tricky prospect, wouldn't it? There were neutrality acts in Britain, so generally it was done kind of sneakily. The the South, in some way, would engage some con- constructor in Britain to build a ship, not a warship, but just a ship. And then the ship would leave and meet up with another ship that had some guns and they would refit the ship that was just constructed, put cannons on it, and then go and raid the commerce. Like the Alabama, for example, was made that way. That was probably the most famous of the commerce raiders. Uh, So it was uh, kind of a cat-and-mouse game because it's sort of like, well, the Confederates knew what they were doing, the Union knew what they were doing, the British knew what they were doing. So it's this little game. How do we meet all the the legal requirements and uh, uh, still get this kind of done. Many people in Britain, for example, or at least in the aristocracy, were sympathetic toward the South. Um, <clears throat> uh, usually the, the lower caste classes might have been more sympathetic toward the North. So there was there was all this diplomacy. In fact, if you if we could just back up for a minute, just think about the term blockade. This was uh, viewed as maybe an unfortunate term to have been used by the Lincoln administration because in general, you blockade an enemy's ports. You close your own. That's true. What you're suggesting by the use of that word is that the Confederacy was a legitimate government. Right. There was an implication there. There was a tacit uh, recognition of their independence. And that, too, became a, a, a kind of a problem that I think maybe wasn't as severe as it was because it was so much easier to talk about blockade than closing your ports. So you talk about blockade runners. I never heard anybody say, uh, you know, closed port runner. So really what what we get down to when we look at the two sides is that the Union Navy had a job that extended not only throughout the the southern ports in the Atlantic and the Gulf of Mexico, but also extended down into the Caribbean Caribbean and over all the way to to England and France and Spain throughout the Atlantic Ocean. In fact, that was one of the, the goals of the commerce raiders, not only to inflict pain on the northern commercial interests, but also to draw away resources. Sure, the more Union ships that follow the commerce raiders, the fewer available right. for blockade duty, I guess. And, you know, nowadays, when we have, you know, satellites and global positioning systems, how do you find a ship on the ocean that's trying very hard not to be found? Uh, that was quite a challenge. And so some of these these commerce raiders lasted a long time, and they often got caught <clears throat> not being, by being found on the ocean, but being caught in port somewhere. That's true. I think most of these, whether it was the Sumter or the Florida or the Alabama, they got caught in foreign ports where they'd gone in for provisions or right. for repairs. Yeah, very much. And in the Alabama, um, was challenged to a duel, essentially, by the Union ship that found it in uh, uh, Cherbourg, I think, in France. Right. And, but the Alabama lasted um, maybe two years. Yeah, it, from 62 to 64, it was active out there. And it sunk uh, all by itself. I think about 60, 65 ships. So the commerce raiders in total must have been maybe 200 ships, which given the size of the 
maritime force might not seem too big, but bear in mind the ripple effect that if you were a merchant marine that thought of going out in the ocean, that because you might get caught by one of these commerce raiders, gave you a lot of pause. That's true, and some of the research has suggested that many of the American-owned ships didn't go to sea uh, as merchant traders anymore, that they either sold their ships to the Union Navy, right. or they stayed in port, or they stayed close to port, which, I mean, left, uh, which left much of the carrying up to British ships. That's an odd twist there. And in fact, uh, uh, some of these uh, changed flags of registration to avoid being considered an American ship. Insurance rates went through the roof. Um, I remember one account, uh, following what you were saying, where um, one of the commerce raiders called on a port in, I think it was like um, Singapore or something, and found dozens of American ships just sitting there. <laughs> waiting waiting for peace to break out. Waiting right? for peace to break out yeah. so they can go back on the ocean. So it wasn't so much that the, the 100 ships were lost, although, or 200 ships, but uh, the ripple effect. So it was uh, painful. But in the long run, I really don't think it had much impact on the outcome of the war. Increased the pain considerably, mm-hmm. but uh, didn't really um, change the outcome. In terms of the Confederate actions against the Union Merchant Marine, you don't think it had much impact there? I'm sorry? You, say you, you don't think that the Confederate actions had much impact? No, not on the outcome of the war. Yeah. Uh, the cost of the war, certainly it did. So I think um, that was dramatic. And I think also, uh, again, as a novelist, I just kind of like the story of the Congress readers. You talk about uh, great stories. There were great stories. Well, and some of the figures that were involved, like uh, Raphael Sims, mm-hmm. the great captain of the uh, Sumter and then more famously of the Alabama. Right. Uh, his is a very great story in itself, and several of these other individuals, too. Just uh, he's a good example, too, of, of how uh, his ship got sank, but, but he escaped. Mm-hmm. So they never caught him. No, in fact, at, at the end of the war, he wound up with a commission as a brigadier general in the Confederate Army, uh, directing artillery on land, which was probably only a small step for him. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit more about the blockade, though. Uh, okay. The Confederate coastline, uh, something like 3,500 miles long, uh, when you think about the, the jaggedness of all that. There were 10 major ports and another nearly 200 bays and inlets and river mouths where a vessel could put in and, and load or unload. So it's a huge job trying to cover all of that. It, it was enormous. And you think about uh, how easy it would be for any kind of ship to find a dark night to just uh, get on a shore someplace and use small boats to get a cargo in. It was an enormous task. So the Union starts out with something like, like you say, about 40, 50 ships, something like that. And uh, uh, one aspect about the blockade in international law is that a, a blockade has to be real. You can't simply announce a blockade and everybody expect to, to honor it. You have to have ships there with guns to prevent either exit or entrance. So, like you say, there's, there'd be a port. Well, you couldn't even put just one ship there because blockaders could get around it. I mean, uh, blockade runners could get around it. So you'd have to have a number of ships. So one aspect about that, or one ramification, was the Union needed a huge navy. They were going to have to grow very big, very fast. And they had the, let's say, the economic resources that they could do that. But in the beginning, if you read about what they were doing, they were grabbing every vessel they can. They'd buy it, they'd put a cannon on it, and send it out to do some blockade duty. And eventually, after you know, some time, they had some uh, lead time, they could start building vessels and such. But that was one aspect about the, the Union naval strategy. They would have to have a big navy. And they didn't have one to start. 
so they're going to have to build it very fast. So you start out from, again, I say like 40 on on uh, duty in the area. There were more overseas, which were often called back. But by the end of the war, by 65, they had something like maybe 600 ships. So it was a huge increase. And I read I think one about figure a short that, amount of time. I read one figure that somewhere around 500 Union vessels had been active in the blockade. Right. Most, about 150 were on duty at any one point, at least. Most of the ships in the Union Navy were involved in blockade. Mm-hmm. It, it had to be a physical presence. Then you now, I think for a lot of people, the notion of a blockade trying to cut off trade into the Confederacy would would have like a string of ships off of the coast. But that's not really the way it was. It no. wasn't just a cordon. Yeah, uh, uh, think about uh, how the ships would get, would want to get into the port. So you'd have to find, you might say, the shipping lanes or figure out where they'd try to sneak in. Um, it made for interesting duty in a sense uh, because uh, most of the time it's pretty boring. Here's a good example of how or why we don't hear about the navies very much. If the navy was successful in its blockade, nothing would happen. No ships would get out, no ships would get in, and they wouldn't try. So to be successful meant that uh, nobody would hear about them. It would be a very quiet success. Now, in the beginning, they had nowhere near enough ships to do that. And even even at the end, there were still small ships that could get in where the blockaders, for example, couldn't follow. Uh, You pick a real dark night... uh, kind of bad weather, and uh, you could slip through um, a number of ships and they'd never even see you. So it was never 100% effective. But uh, the needs of the South were much greater than were coming in on, a, on a, just a few ships once in a while. That the blockade runners in, in their construction, they were pretty tricky too, weren't they? They were painting these ships gray uh, so that they could blend in with the water and at dusk and at dawn. They often were steamships, but they burned a kind of cold, anthracite cold that didn't make much smoke. Oh yes, they they got uh, very clever in the in the very beginning of the war. It wasn't too difficult to to get through the blockade because often there weren't any ships around. Toward the end, you had to be really clever. Well, we I don't think we have really good figures on this, but one estimate I've seen was that ninety percent of the ships trying to run the blockade in the first year were successful. That sounds about right. And and yet by the end, once you did have so many hundreds of ships available and, and so many on on station, something like half of them were being caught. But again, we're not even sure because not all of these uh, surreptitious voyages were reported anywhere. Right. Uh, I think uh, the Union realized that the, the, the best way to stop all these blockade runners, since catching every single ship was really going to be an impossible task, was to take the port they were trying to get to and make it so they had no place to go. Right. So that would be an important part of that. And so they shut them down port by port in some cases. One at a time, yes. Well, and it helped, too, although we've been talking about the Navy, it also helps to remember that some of this was coordinated with activity on the land. If the armies got closer or took a city, then you closed up a port that way. Well, I think one characteristic of the Civil War in terms of the Navy is that so much of their work was done in amphibious operations in coordination with the Army, especially on the rivers, very much like that. But... Uh, when you take a look at the coastline, like you mentioned, it's about 3,500 miles. Well, if they had to go from a northern port to their blockading station and back to a northern port, that would use up most of their time. So one of the early things that the, the Union had in mind was to seize ports or operational bases along the coast and turn them into coaling stations and, and refueling stations and uh, provisioning stations so they didn't have to go all the way back to the north to, to have that happen. 
and that usually required uh, the Navy, say, like to bombard a place, but they needed somebody on the ground. They needed an army to take possession of it. It's like um, when Farragut captured New Orleans, uh, he was in his ships, but he didn't have anybody to occupy the city, so he could have destroyed the city. He didn't want to do that. So they had to quick send an army to, to come up and take possession of it. So that uh, very much with the cooperation was, was uh, very characteristic of Union operations. You're right, though. This, this is happening on the rivers. It's happening in Tennessee at Fort Henry and Donaldson. It mm -hmm. happened uh, to some extent at Vicksburg. It happens even more on the Atlantic toward the end of the war on, uh, on the Atlantic coast near Wilmington oh, yes. at Fort Fisher. That was, that was the last big Confederate port open, wasn't it? I think so, yes. Uh, um, the uh, Union ships would put a, a, a huge uh, barrage on these ports, but then somebody would have to attack it on the land. So it was very much uh, an amphibious operation, and uh, some of these uh, forts were tough nuts to crack. They lasted a long time into the war. What about uh, life on blockade duty? What was this like for people? You said that the blockade runners are romantic types. As a novelist, you like to, to think yep. of characters like that. Do you have any uh, similar characters standing on blockade duty? Well, I, I don't think I think you could characterize blockade duty as as pretty much boring. Now, there's there's uh, some some aspects to this. Uh, uh, money plays a part in this in some sense. The blockade runners tended to be um, highly motivated because if you could get, especially toward the end of the war, if you could get a ship in into the Confederacy with a load of not only some munitions but uh, consumer goods, you could make huge profits. And one thing I don't think people realize is that uh, if a Union ship captured a blockader, the the men on the Union ship actually were paid for that enormous sums. This was called prize money. And uh, I don't think people realize that, that uh, in the Civil War that was actually done. But this money came from, they auctioned off what they found on board, didn't they? They, they auctioned, they sold the ship. Uh, sometimes the government bought the ship. Uh, they'd auction off the goods and such, and they split the money amongst the people, either on the ship itself, but there would be like a certain portion would go to the squadron commander, and it would be um, different amounts depending on your rank. And you didn't actually have to be the ship that actually got the blockader. All you had to do was be within signaling range, and you would get some of the money. And this And these were huge amounts. Well, this is fascinating. Let's talk some more about this when we come back. Okay. This is Civil War Talk Radio.